Welcome to the Dear Nikki Mama podcast. I'm Ashley. And I'm Martha. And our mission is to connect the past and the present Nikki Mom by celebrating our stories and what our babies have overcome. Whether your NICU journey was 50 years ago or whether you find yourself in the NICU today, we hope that this podcast reminds you that you are not alone. Hi, mamas, and welcome to the Dear Nikki Mama podcast. It's your hosts, Martha, and my dear, dear friend, Ashley. <laughs> uh, welcome. We are in the quarantine season. We're still here. Um, and during this time, we're not together, but I can still give Ashley virtual hugs, and, and that makes all the difference. <laughs> it does. It really does. <laughs> um, mamas, we know that we're in a season um, of a lot of uh, for be- lack of a better word, holidays in the NICU community. We have September, which is NICU Awareness Month. Um, and in October and November, we have things like uh, pregnancy loss awareness. And um, we have the holidays, which are a huge time of memory for all people who have been in and out of the NICU. So we wanted to, to talk a little bit about trauma. And, and walk through some of the, just the basics of understanding what triggers and trauma are so that we can really um, build up a toolkit in, for, for our, your audience here um, to, to be ready for these things. Um, and to do so, we've invited our old friend, Natalie Ryder of Prairie Land Counseling, LLC. Um, she, she is a behavioral health specialist in the area. She has a practice that, um, is fantastic. It offers services for maternal mental health and for women and trauma. I think the list is really endless. I love that we have this as a resource to our local community and now to a broader community because you're doing telehealth. But will you say hello, Natalie? Welcome back. Hello. Thank you. Also, I just got my Minnesota license. Ooh, so now I can woo-hoo. see anyone in Minnesota. Yes, please. We'll make sure to link all the things for Prairie Land in the show notes as we have before, because it's a phenomenal practice. Um, And again, like I said, you are a longtime friend and a longtime supporter of NICU, NICU parents in general, and you are wonderful. So thank you for being here today. Thanks, Martha. (laughs) Uh, So I think we hear a lot of words floating around about trauma in just the daily lexicon. You know, uh, there's often depictions of PTSD in television shows, things like that, but it's often surrounding like war survivors, you know, veterans, um, or maybe people who've uh, experienced sexual assault, things like that. But we don't often hear it spoken about in terms of medical trauma or trauma of, from the NICU. Uh, so we just want to talk to you a little bit about what trauma is and specifically what is a trigger? Cause that's a word that gets thrown around a lot and we don't really know. Yeah, sure. Um, so trauma, if we're going to kind of look at it from like a DSM or diagnostic and statistical manual um, lens is um, any sort of experience or secondhand experience of learning about um, a traumatic event. So something like a NICU experience where you're uncertain about what's going to happen. Everything feels kind of tense and on edge to, you know, witnessing um, something like an assault or, or something along those lines. And they've actually done studies where I believe it's like somewhere like, it's like around 40% of NICU parents actually do qualify with most of the symptoms of PTSD within like the first six weeks of a NICU stay. Um, and so when we talk about PTSD and trauma, specifically with NICU, it's actually very common. And also, it's very common to have just general birth trauma, you know, especially women come in with, um, and and men as well, come in with these very, like, kind of specific ideas about how they want their births to go or how it's going to be. And anybody who has given birth knows that plans are one thing, what actually happens are another. Um, you know, and sometimes that loss of control can be very difficult, and it's a very tense situation, and um, sometimes, you know, in the midst of all the, the tenseness, communication with our medical providers, you know, can kind of go askew or astray because they're trying to focus on so many things at once, and so even just the perceived event that um, our, our lives were at risk, um, our baby's lives were at risk, our partner's lives were at risk, um, you know, there's a lot going on, especially like within that birth room itself, because you have three different point of views. 
well, four actually, you have the medical providers point of view. And so medical providers oftentimes experience, you know, secondary trauma where they may not be experiencing it to their bodies themselves, but they're going to be experiencing it by witnessing it. You have the partner's point of view. So, you know, they're watching their partner point, you know, give birth, they're watching their child come into this world. They are going to see things that the person giving birth does not see. I've heard this a lot when I talk to um, partners, especially those who've um, you know, described the birth, and it's almost like a very, it's a different story than the person giving birth. Mm-hmm. You know, you have the person giving birth, their point of view, um, and then you have the baby's point of view, which we never really get to hear at all. But so there's a lot of different point of views just going on within that, that just that birth room, you know, and then we take it out into the NICU, and again, we have the same points of view. You know, we have the provider's point of view. We have, you know, now parents can become more of observers rather than direct participants. And that's where a lot of that secondary um, trauma can kind of come in where they're not personally experiencing the medical emergency, but they're witnessing it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'd never heard of it spoken about that way. But I, I mean, I think that is the secondary part. I think a lot of the mamas in our community speak to the idea that you're watching uh, terrible things happen to your child medically. You're seeing, you know, their, their heart rate crash, or you're seeing, you know, emergency procedures being done. And the, the feeling of being out of control is so pervasive. Um, so I thank you so much for, for bringing those in. I had never heard it described that way before. And of course, it also gives me a lot of respect for all of the providers who work there because they really, they walk through this many times a day, every day of the year. So it's incredible. Um, so how would trauma manifest in our bodies, you know, kind of during the kind of the event, because for this is another confusing thing is like NICU stays can be kind of long and births can be long and the excitement. So there's a lot of trauma, traumatic events happening. Um, How is, how is our body responding during the trauma? Right. So this goes into like a whole different, like, field and subset and thing kind of like that. Um, but probably like the most concise way to really discuss it is, you know, um, basically when your body is forced to witness or experience a traumatic event, it goes into the fight, flight, or freeze response. Um, and so, you know, some of us, you know, we'll talk about, you know, freezing up and like they had to like medical professionals had to like push us out of the way or, you know, like we felt we wanted to like leave the room, like we couldn't get away from there fast enough um, or that we just wanted to like push everybody aside and rush in there and take care of our kids or, or our partners ourselves, you know, kind of, there are lots of different ways that our bodies react. Um, but basically, you know, um, our amygdala gets activated and then we respond with the fight, flight, freeze or flee. Um, and then the way that, again, without going into too much neuroscience, and I do practice from an EMDR, so eye movement desensitization and reprocessing. And so the way that I kind of view trauma, which may be different than other practitioners, is that um, when our brain kind of goes into this fight, flight, or freeze activation, our our body is focused. Our body is really just focusing on surviving, and so a lot of like the the higher functioning or like the rationalization or like you know that kind of stuff tends to kind of get pushed out of the way because we're really just focusing on this present moment and how do we get through this present moment. And so with trauma, oftentimes we'll talk about things like triggers, and so it'll be a stimulus. So like something you see, something you smell, something you hear, somebody will um, describe an event and it'll be like, um, it'll, it'll reactivate that response system. And so some people experience flashbacks, some people just experience, um, you know, like a physiological response, racing heart, um, sweating, difficulty breathing. Some people just experience emotional distress, feeling very anxious, or they may just feel fidgety or things kind of like that. So there's a lot of ways that they actually experience would, if they were like, let's say triggered. So talking about secondary trauma, one thing that I was wondering is, is it possible to 
to come home with secondary trauma of just like being in the NICU and experiencing other people's traumas. I felt like it kind of surprised me how I was hyper aware, not only of what was happening with my son, but then in the NICU when we shared beds in a whole room together, you were also experiencing other people's traumas in like in a different way, you know, like you were. So is it possible to also feel some of that trauma in the NICU or am I making that up? No, you're totally not making it up. Um, But, you know, if you think about, you know, if you're sharing um, a room with somebody else and their alarms are going off, you know, they're talking about procedures that have to be done. They're talking about what the prognosis or the plan of action or treatment is. That's all information that you're being exposed to. And then you're also being exposed to your own you know, trauma with your own child. And so it's, it's kind of getting mixed together, you know? And so a lot of people will talk about the fact that, um, they think one of the local NICUs is by a helicopter pad. Um, yep. Ours is. Yeah. Was. yeah. And so that they would be sitting, you know, in the NICU and even if there was nothing going on, just like the, the sound of the helicopter coming and going, Mm-hmm. would they just associate started to associate that with their stay in the NICU and so then you know people several people have talked about when they hear, hear helicopters they will experience that same sensation like when they were sitting mm-hmm. in the NICU mm-hmm. so even like outside stimuli outside noises or things like that are still part of your environment and so you know even if it's not like your child specific alarm going off but it's the one in the room with you like you're still integrating that into your environment sure yeah that makes sense so we talked then about how you experiencing it in the NICU and you touched on this a little bit when you mentioned the helicopters right so potentially afterwards and I'm putting after trauma in quotations because mm-hmm. Sometimes trauma goes on when you come home, but you're out of the NICU and then that trauma is, is triggered. Um, and like we mentioned before, that's a word that gets thrown around a lot and sometimes in negative ways and sometimes in scary ways. So could you just define what a trigger is for us? Sure. So if we're going to define a trigger in like a really like psychological sense, a trigger would be something that somebody experiences who maybe has like a PTSD trauma sort of lens that causes them discomfort. And so there's lots of different reactions um, that can happen with a trigger. And then there's also what I think a lot of people are calling triggers, which is just the emotional distress. Um, And I think like that's a word that people are kind of tend to be throwing around a little bit more like, oh, I was reading, you know, so-and-so's ex-boyfriend's picture and it triggered me or whatever, things like that. And I think, you know, um, particularly in the past couple years, there was like a huge debate, um, especially on college campuses about trigger warnings. And I used to work on a college campus. And so this is definitely something that we discussed. Um, But, you know, there is a difference between just in feeling uncomfortable about something and then having something um, cause a response because you've experienced a trauma. Like talking politics, that might be an emotional trigger. You feel a lot of discomfort, especially if people have different political views. You might just feel like, oh, I don't really know if I want to talk about this. That's kind of emotional distress. Um, you know, hearing the helicopter because it's right next to the NICU pad and then having that sense of like, I feel like I'm, I'm back or I'm, I'm feeling myself kind of respond. That would probably more, be more of that trauma trigger. Um, you know, and so we talk about things like, you, you know, like anxiety triggers or be, would be things like, what are things that make you more anxious? Again, that's more emotional discomfort. It w- isn't necessarily a trauma response. Um, social anxiety is a great one that, you know, if we think about the fact that going on stage or giving a speech might be extremely triggering, that again, is something that is going to cause this response. And in that, in like a social anxiety, you're actually having a lot more of that physiological response like you would. So, but if we talk about triggers just really from trauma, from like a really trauma-informed lens, it's going to be something that causes our bodies to respond or to reactivate in kind of like that fight, flight, or freeze. It sounds as well like, I mean, it could be anything Mm -hmm. and trauma is subjective, right? So um, 
I think one thing I've learned is that if what, what is triggering for Ashley is going to be different for me. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that that's really difficult as well too, for moms to, to, I, I think, get their heads around. I mean, at least it was for me too, to not feel shame around why is this different for this person than it is for me. And that's, and that's definitely it is what somebody identifies as their own personal triggers is, is very personal and is something specific to their situation. Um, And it might be something that they don't even recognize is triggering them. Um, And so again, through counseling or, or things like that, you kind of process and identify what exactly maybe eliciting some of that response, you know, and while for one person, you know, it might be helicopters for another person, it might be beeping, Um, you know, so if you think about like the beeping of the machines, um, like, let's say you're driving on the street, and you hear like a, a truck backing up, and you hear that beeping, that might be something that's like, oh, wait a minute, you know, I'm having this response to that, this, this beeping, um, you know, and it may happen immediately after, or it may happen years after, you know, we, there's no, there's no specific set of time. There is diagnostically, there's a specific set of time that has to pass in order for it to be like defined between like an acute stress disorder and PTSD and things like that. Um, But that's clinically, but people can experience symptoms and do experience symptoms for, for years or delayed onset. Um, You know, there's, there's lots of different circumstances. It's just recognizing that something feels abnormal. I mean, you're talking about how, you know, triggers maybe feel in the body. So you can have just like the physiological triggers. So things like shortness of breath, racing heart, um, accelerated heart rate, heart palpitations, um, tingling sensations, um, feeling like you're depersonalizing. So like you're leaving kind of dissociating a little bit or derealizing, which is when you feel like the situation that your animals feel dreamlike or not quite real. Um, those are some dis- dissociation things. Um, uh, and then, you know, more of like those emotional triggers can be things like feeling very anxious, dip in mood, extreme irritability, outbursts. Another, um, Uh, sign and symptom of PTSD actually can be kind of acting in, in ways that can kind of be reckless behavior. And I think, you know, this is something that not everybody recognizes as a, as a symptom of trauma, but it definitely can be. And so it can almost be seen as like acting out. But if, if you think about, well, I'm trying to regulate you know, this, this nervous system that has been dysregulated by this trauma, um, these acting out behaviors may feel or give you a sense of calm in some, in some ways. So what is the difference between like a trigger and an anxiety attack? Or are those kind of the same thing? Are there differences? There, there are differences and mainly it has to do more with, the number of symptoms that you experience, the duration of them, and um, how often they happen, and the type of symptoms that you experience. Okay. Um, so, like, an anxiety attack might be something like, I feel, um, I, I get really nervous. Perfect example. Before we started this podcast, I go to click on Zoom, um, and it's like, you have to update. And so now all of a sudden my heart is racing. I'm feeling kind of nauseated. I can start to feel my palms get sweaty. You know, being in technology, I'm always like, oh, I'm feeling really anxious. That's kind of maybe a little bit more of that anxiety piece. Mm-hmm. Sure. Um, panic attacks um, would be more increased symptoms, but also like a fear of like losing control or going crazy and then, and then fearing that you're going to have this attack again and then doing things to avoid it. So if all of a sudden, like I go to log on to zoom and I, you know, I feel my heart racing and trouble breathing and sweaty palms and I feel frozen and stiff. And all of a sudden I'm just like, Oh my gosh, I can't do this. Um, I feel really distressed. Uh, I think, you know, I'm going to go crazy. I think I can't do this anymore. And then the next time I might avoid all online meetings or try to avoid my interactions online, that be more, might be leaning more towards a little bit of, panic symptoms. Um, But the physiological responses that oftentimes we get when we feel anxious and we feel are having a trauma response are not that different. 
And that's why having a very qualified uh, uh, mental health professional yes. providing an accurate diagnostic evaluation is extremely <laughs> important and we should not self-diagnose on a podcast. Yes. Amen. I'm glad you said that. <laughs> Yes, that is a great point. Um, there are many, many a wonderful resource that you can use to find wonderful providers that specialize in those things. And maybe we can link them in the show notes. That would be a great place to put them. Um, but I, I think you've touched on a piece too, which is really hard, which is there's a lot of um, messiness and overlap that happens in our brain. You know, there's a lot of things that happen to the body after NICU. I mean, we're not just talking about trauma. You know, we're talking about um, the, the change in hormones in our body, you know, the postpartum things, um, as well as if you already had underlying maybe anxiety or depression, or if you went through fertility treatments, which also, you know, right, are correlated with a higher, um, chance of, of perinatal mood anxiety disorders. So there's so many things talking, which I think is again, a good reason to, to, to find a good provider that you trust. Um, I wonder, you talked a little bit about uh, how we might be experiencing triggers years and years on. And sometimes we've had in our, in our audience, you know, the women in our community, they said, I didn't start really experiencing my trauma or processing it until two years out of the NICU. One, why would that be? And two, is that something we should feel worried or concerned about that it's taking us a long time because a, a common trope we hear is that was in the past. Why don't you get over that? Mm-hmm. So you should never feel bad about how long it takes you to process your trauma. And also something really important to remember is sometimes we treat trauma little bits at a time. You know, it's really hard to eat an entire loaf of bread if you stick the whole thing in your mouth. Sometimes we have to cut it up slice by slice and just eat it one piece at a time when we're ready for it. And sometimes that can take months and sometimes that can take years. And, you know, something that, again, most mental health professionals do is, is look to see what sort of other, you know, coping skills and emotional resources and things like that are in play before you start to process trauma because it can be disruptive. And so sometimes you take just little pieces and little pieces and little pieces and you just work through them slowly or a little bit at a time because you have lives outside. You know, you have children to raise, partners to support, jobs that you have to go through, um, nonprofits that you're running, you know, things like that. Like we all have other lives besides this one specific role. And trauma, no matter whether it's in our past or not, has molded how we respond to our current stressors. And so when we go into treating the pool of trauma, we recognize that usually it's a long swim. Um, It is a marathon, not a sprint. And even marathon runners have to take little side breaks, you know, to refuel and refresh. And so we just accept that, hey, this is where I'm at, and this is a really good place, and at least, even if it's only 10 feet from the starting line, look at me, I'm 10 feet further from where I've been. There is no expiration date. There's no, you should be over this by now. You know, if it's impacting you, then it's something that needs to be processed. If it continues to impact you, it's probably something that needs to be processed, and then again, consulting with a mental health professional on how to do it in a way that feels safe and is respectful of, of your life. I, I think that ultimately leads to another question. Is it possible to completely eliminate triggers from our life? Yes and no. Um, I think, you know, it's possible to not have some of the more extreme trauma reactions, like let's say dissociation or derealization, um, some of maybe some of the the acting out behavior or or things kind of like that. You know, the the goal is when you're working with somebody is to to get the distress level as low as possible um, or to feel kind of as distanced from it. So it is possible to feel, you know, in a way, almost able to kind of rationalize, well, like, of course, I, I felt sad when I looked at this, this picture of my, my baby in the isolate, like, that was a hard time for me. And then I'm able to move on, kind of ride the emotion versus getting like engulfed by the wave. I think you bring up such a great point of 
of acknowledging that what we went through was really hard. Um, I think, you know, I know from experience and from what I've heard from other moms is the, um, the, the, the desire to heal is so strong that we give ourselves like so little grace in this incredibly difficult situation. So I know you've talked about it before on our podcast. We've talked about it before, but self-compassion is, is, uh, seems to be really essential. I, like you just said, I mean, even just acknowledging how hard it is. I, and if you're listening right now, I mean, just try to say that, like, it was really hard. It was so hard. And the majority of people don't have to experience their child in the ICU. So that's, um, I just always want to encourage our moms to, to just really pat themselves on the back for surviving at the, at the very, at the very first of all this. So, yeah. Healing with trauma is, is moving out of that surviving and into kind of like that thriving piece. Sure. Like I have survived this. I am still a whole person no matter what. And now I'm kind of, and now I'm choosing to kind of thrive in this place and do with this, whatever I choose to do with it and feel like I don't, like I have more control over it than it has control over me. Mm-hmm. And, you know, again, like the number of, of, of people that I've worked with when I'm just able to say, so you're, what you're telling me is that this is really traumatic. Like just the, the fact that they're able to, to not even recognize that what they went through as trauma is really interesting. You know, they're not, they, they never have put that label on it. Like, oh, that is, that is trauma. I'm like, yeah, that is trauma. Like that's mm-hmm. what you have experienced is a traumatic event. Mm-hmm. And, and, you know, if we were to label it as, as something different, we certainly can, but in whatever works for you works for you. But I know that for a lot of, of my clients, you know, just even giving them the words to be like, what I went through was a traumatic event. What I went through was very hard. Even acknowledging that fact can be incredibly empowering. Mm-hmm. When I hear you say that, I think about our full-term moms who maybe had quote shorter NICU stays. And a lot of times they talk to us and they say, I don't even know if I should be in this group. I was only there for two days. I mean, there's moms in here who've been in there for a year, you know, but I think you, you bring up that powerful point of what you went through was still traumatic, whether it was an hour or 10 days or a hundred days, your journey and your trauma is still valid and it's okay to acknowledge that and then give yourself space and permission to begin to heal. I think that's really, really valuable. Mm. Yeah. Ashley, I think one of the things that I'm thinking of when you're talking about this is just the comparative nature of motherhood, modern motherhood altogether, but also how we use social media. And we talked about it a bit at the top, but there's a lot of us that really engage with NICU pages on Instagram and Facebook and now TikTok. I don't know how the youngins are doing it, but <laughs> apparently there are NICU moms on TikTok. Um, and and we're engaging with that. And then at the same time, we're engaging with moms who've had, again, quote unquote, normal deliveries and normal pregnancies and um, normal uh, postpartum times. Um, so I think I find, and what we hear often is that social media can be a place where a lot of feelings are triggered, whether it's trauma response or, or it's um, emotional distress, like you mentioned. Um, and how, how would you suggest approaching that, that difficulty? Because you want to be engaged, you want to socialize, especially now during pandemic time. How do you strike a balance between protecting yourself and, and socializing? Well, I think, you know, it's recognizing when you need to take that break. Like there are just times when you find yourself, you know, feeling more triggered, more withdrawn, more exhausted, more scrolling, more, you know, turning to social media just to fill a void. Um, that may be a really great time to check out of it. You know. Um, in, but if you're going to social media because there's a specific thing that you want to do, there's a specific person you want to interact with, there's a specific event that you want to support, like when you go to it with purpose, those are great times to really interact with social media. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I think what's really wonderful um, about, you know, things like Facebook and Instagram, and I don't know about TikTok, but, you know, they have like a, a snooze or unfollow button where you don't unfriend, where you don't leave the group, where you don't do anything drastic like that, but you can just clean up your news feed for a little bit. You can just clean up your feed 
even if it's only for like a 72 hour break. And sometimes like that just can help us kind of cleanse the palate a little bit. And we know that there's so many studies that show higher social media usage with higher rates of depression and anxiety. Social media usage, um, while it, it feels very much like a lifeline and it can be certainly at the same time it is a double-edged sword and we just need to be very careful with how we use it and sometimes you know even like with Dear Nikki Mama going in and finding women who are experiencing things like you feels like very supportive I'm sure that there are at times especially for your listeners that they do have to turn out because it feels like too close to their story or they can't relate or it feels just too much or too overwhelming and that's okay Mm-hmm. You know, I think part of a respectful community and, and part of your guys' community is respecting that I can take the space that I need and recognize that it's not like this internalize it as like this personal rejection. Mm-hmm. Um, and if it feels like a personal rejection, maybe that's a sign that it's something to kind of work through. Mm, yeah. Totally. Yeah. I like to think of us that like we're like your favorite beach read. Pick us up when you need it, put it down, put it back on the shelf. It'll be there with the Twizzlers, the mimosas, whenever you're ready. Yeah, exactly. Because yeah. there's a very special place for for groups like Dear Nikki Mama, and they're absolutely needed. The you know the thing is just to self monitor of like, hey, is this a time when I need to do a 24 hour break? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And if you haven't taken one yet, I kind of would like to challenge people to take one. Yeah. Um, not to like decrease your viewership or anything like that. No, that's no, fine. no. no but we'll like, know, we know that's why. <laughs> but yes, no, but you know, like out of out of anything, whether it's like a family group or or a political group or um, an activist group or something like that, take a twenty four seventy two hour break and just see how how you feel after that. Mm-hmm. You know, again, nobody's asking you to cut off your left arm because it's literally just what would it take? What does life feel like? if I'm able to take a little bit of this break. Absolutely. So I know we're going to kind of not to jump ahead because I know we're going to dedicate, you know, time to this specifically, but so we're in a pandemic. That's no secret. And what? <laughs> and unfortunately we can't snooze the pandemic. We can't like ungroup the, I wish we could, I wish we could unfriend it, throw it away, block it, get it out of my life. Uh, but for the moms um, who are experiencing triggers, um, you know, we did an episode with Parja Deshpande where we talked specifically about the cor- correlations between how this pandemic feels compared to when we were in the NICU. So, you know, what are some practical, helpful things that moms can do to just simply get through the day being in the middle of a pandemic? Maybe they're feeling particularly triggered or they're feeling kind of those physical sensations that you mentioned. What are some practical things that they can do to just better love and care for themselves? Yeah. Well, you know, like Martha had mentioned, self-compassion, just recognizing that I'm going through a tough moment and and kind of doing what you need to do. Um, you know, if you're ever having thoughts of like harming yourself or somebody else or, or anything like that, definitely reach out to somebody immediately, whether it's 911 or somebody that you trust, a National Suicide Prevention Hotline. Um, if you're ever at that point, please reach out immediately. Uh, as, you know, we, we this, the rates of suicide are increasing. Um, during the pandemic, um, as long, along with the rates of uh, domestic violence. And so if you're in a situation where you are not safe, make sure that you're reaching out um, to try to get yourself as safe as possible. Um, otherwise, you know, there's like the, the square breathing that comes around, I feel like social media every now and then, um, where you kind of breathe in through that square. Um, there's the five, four, three, two, one, five things you see, four things you hear, uh, three things you can physically touch, two things you can smell or taste, and one good thing about yourself. Um, that's a common grounding technique. Um, but, you know, just really practicing mindfulness can also be helpful. Like, all I have to do is get through this next five minutes, and mm-hmm. then I'll, I'll manage the next five minutes in five minutes. But what am I going mm-hmm. to do in this here and now? Yeah. What am I going to do with my present moment? Mm-hmm. And I think that's really, really important, especially in this time of uncertainty where we're all really searching for or grasping for when is the vaccine going to happen? When are numbers going to decline? When are we going to have like this final fix? When can I go back to living my life as normal? Mm -hmm. Um, Those are all things that really are beyond our control, 
but we can instead focus on, okay, what can I focus on in these next five minutes? Mm-hmm. You know, I may not be able to find the cure for COVID, but maybe I can um, donate $5 to a domestic violence shelter because I know that they're helping families that are in need right now. Or I can write letters for NICU mamas so that they have something to read while they're going through this and feeling isolated as well. And that will help me feel more connected. Mm-hmm. Um, so just what are the small things that I can kind of do in this moment or to build up to something bigger? Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think it's interesting to not to go back to social media, but social media gives you a really wide lens of how each individual is processing the pandemic. And that in and of itself can be triggering to some extent because it's like, wow, am I going crazy for feeling overwhelmed by this? Am I going crazy for feeling triggered? And it's like, no, we all are individually experiencing this pandemic on a very different personal level. And so, you know, taking those breaks from social media, especially now can also be just a really great way to love yourself because it makes you feel a little less, uh, I don't want to go back to the word crazy, but a little less like, ah, I don't know. I think it's regulated. There you go. Good word. Good word. (laughs) I have learned some things from our resident expert. So yeah. Good word. Yeah. I know when the pandemic started, I remember, you know, again, and I'm a mental health professional being like, I'm handling this great. I I feel like Uh I'm doing good. And then I was like, it was like three o'clock in the morning and I was on like my second box of like peanut butter cookies. And I was like on my 10th episode of Star Trek. And I was like, you know, maybe. I am not, maybe I am not handling this as well as I thought I was. I mean, I'm still going to finish this Star Trek episode. Right. Okay. <laughs> but yeah, yeah. You know, yeah. I think it's, it, I think no matter who you are or what your position is, it's really just important to, to listen to yourself and to mm-hmm. provide yourself self-compassion because everybody's buckets, everybody's buckets are full. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and everybody's buckets are probably overflowing yeah. at this point. Yeah, um, sure. And as things ramp up towards elections, mm-hmm. um, it doesn't matter what side of the aisle that you're on, things tend to get more heated um, and a little bit more emotionally invested. Mm-hmm. And so really asking yourself, okay, what do I need to do to keep my bucket from overflowing too much or even decrease it a little bit? Um, you know, does that mean, again, like... Um, as, as we come up on holidays or breaks or, or alternating weeks of our kids in school or out of school, like, do we have um, a moratorium on talking about politics after 3 p.m.? Or do I watch the news once, just once, mm. and keep it at that? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, are there things that where I can get um, news information specifically just for my region versus as a nation? And I can check the, the nationwide every week or something like that. So we don't have to bury our heads in the sand, but we also don't have to like refresh, you know, MSNBC or Fox every five seconds. Right. Yeah. And again, it's finding that balance because the more that we engage in these, these feeder sources or these stimulus sources, the more overwhelmed we're going to become. Yeah. Cause that's their job. Right. Right, Yeah. (laughs) That is so interesting because last night when I was eating strawberry shortcake ice cream in bed at 3 (laughs) a.m. playing Disney emoji blitz on my phone, I thought, oh, I thought, again, I I keep forgetting it's still happening. And I I think it's, even though uh, Ashley and I talk about mental health like 14 times a day, every day, and we're always checking in, how are you? Where are you at? Do you need space? Can I do this for you? I sent you a copy. Like... (laughs) You know, we do this, but even so, it's it's so easy to um, forget. So I love that you bring up these things that really are self-care. That's what you're talking about, right? Um, You literally have to map it out and schedule it out for yourself right now. And that's really okay because we, that's, that's where we're all at. Um, But even those little things, I think it's a, it's a great idea because it's not just, it's not just bubble baths. It's right. It's just these practical things about getting us to the next day. as we kind of close out on our questions here, I think a lot about, uh, you know, the role of honoring our memories while also protecting ourselves from these insane trauma responses. You know, I uh, am a part of this community around the world of moms who've lost their their kids. Um, and so 
on one hand, I want to honor his memory and I want to honor the experiences and the, the difficult stuff that I've been through in the NICU that my best friends, you know, Ashley and Kendra have been through. Um, and I'll, sometimes it's really hard, but I, it, I, I find struggle to strike that balance. You know, what is honoring the memory? Um, and when am I pressing a bruise? <laughs> Does that make sense? Yeah. Well, I think it is, it is finding a point where you are able to maybe function in your other roles. Um, and versus becoming kind of disabled in those other roles. And, you know, there's a difference between being like, this is, you know, this is the week um, where my child passed away. This is going to be a hard week for me. I'm going to protect it by not choosing to run a marathon or to sign up to volunteer for all these things and, um, you know, build, make class cupcakes and protecting that time and recognizing that, you know, this week is going to be a week for me. Um, and so I'm just going to have to sat, be satisfied that my house will be dirty and my kids might go to school with different colored socks because that's the fashion craze these days. Mm-hmm. And, you know, respecting that versus, you know, pressing the bruise might be, I can't get out of bed for the next week because I'm so into all of these memories and all of these sensations and really reliving this trauma. And that might be a sign um, where it it just might be a sign to kind of reach out and get some help and kind of process and help manage what do the, what are the boundaries for myself? What are my own personal boundaries with how I honor the memory without pressing the bruise, Mm -hmm. you know, um, especially the first couple anniversaries after looking at photographs might be too difficult and that's okay. And that's not dishonorable. That doesn't mean that you, don't value your child's life any less. Um, and it might just be taking things at your own pace and recognizing that your pace may be different than your partner's pace. Mm-hmm. You know, yeah. just, you know, just because you want to do all these things doesn't necessarily mean that your partner's ready to do all those things. So how, again, using communication to be like, how do I honor um, both my way and their way. And so I like to encourage parents to find their own personal way or their own personal memorial, whether it's something like um, building like a, a memory stone in a garden that, that one par- partner or parent maybe only knows a, about or they, that, that's a, their special place to kind of go and reflect or like a bench or something like that, where um, each one has their own personal connection and can kind of honor it without it being too triggering for the other partner. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that's a, that's a great point. I mean, like a lot of these things, there's not, there's not a perfect catch-all answer for everyone. And I love how you encourage self-inventory. You just, you have to check in, um, hashtag check your heart, um, just to see, you know, where you're at and what you need. Um, that honesty and compassion can go a long way. So I love that so much. You touch a lot of nerves, Natalie, when you talk. I'm like, ding, ding, ding. Yeah. <laughs> it's good stuff, though. There is one trigger that we I don't think I touched on that I would like to talk about really Please. quick. Yeah. Um, well, not even a trigger, but just like a sign that you might be being triggered, and that's dreaming. Mm. Oh. Um, you know, dreaming about the, the event or, or stimulus involved in the event um, oftentimes yeah. is a, a symptom of PTSD or of trauma. And you know, I think it's, you know, if, so if you're waking up extremely tense, extremely on edge, clenching, um, uh, jaw grinding, things like that, obviously go through a medical evaluation, but a lot, all, some of it may also be that you may be processing some trauma in the middle of the night that you're not even aware mm-hmm. of, or if you're waking wow. up, um, that is something to be, to consider as well. I appreciate being able to have conversations like this in a setting like this, because I remember in the NICU, I would come across articles on Google because I would Google like NICU mom stuff, you know, and a lot of the headlines were NICU moms struggle with PTSD. And all that I knew about PTSD and triggers was what we hear from war. And it terrified me. Because when I heard that, I thought, I'm going to have it. I'm going to go crazy. I'm not going to be able to be around fireworks. I mean, that's literally like where my brain went. And I just appreciate this type of conversation to really just shed light on that, you know, 
having PTSD or experiencing triggers doesn't mean that you're going crazy. You know, it's just our body's response to experiencing trauma in its simplest form. And so, you know, I hope that mom's listening to this today, just have some relief of like, this isn't like the end all be all, you know, like there is hope to be able to get through these triggers, to find that help, to be able to get out of bed again. So, you know, work through those dreams and just having this conversation makes it a little less scary because I've seen the gamut of PTSD and trigger type information on social media and there's a lot of it. <laughs> so yeah. I appreciate this gentle response to just affirm that, you know, this is simply your body's way of responding to trauma. Right. Yeah. You know, and again, like I think it's really important to remember is that social media makes money off of being divisive. Mm. you know mm-hmm. by by really portraying things that that evoke emotional response mm-hmm. and so the more that it kind of plays to it like the more ads that you click the more things that you buy you know th- those kinds of things so again just really asking yourself okay so like when when do I schedule in maybe even like my monthly social media break mm-hmm. you know um especially, you know, having kids, it's, it's a wonderful practice to, you know, have like no phones before bedtime, you know, if you're, especially if you're raising youngsters. Um, and that way, you know, attention doesn't get divided and then you can kind of zone out and do whatever. And it doesn't mean that you can never use your phone or you can never yeah. go on social media or like, yeah. cause I, my daughter had surgery this weekend. And um, so like, I can tell you, I was on so- social media a lot. I was just like, <laughs> She, all she wanted to do was watch Sophia the first. And let oh. me tell you, oh, she's great. I'm finding oh. out what being <gasps> royal. I, literally, I can sing it in my sleep. No, like, <laughs> like, I think we watched all six seasons because she had surgery on Friday. And so it was Friday, Saturday, Sunday, Monday. Yes. And um, the and last so, few seasons get a little crazy, if you know what I mean. They go off the deep end. Sorry, <laughs> another time. No, it's fine. But, you know, like, every, every parent uses social media. That's totally fine. Every parent uses TV to, you know, babysit, you know, every now and then. Totally fine. It's when you're using it consistently as an escape, yeah. as your main source of coping, as your main source of support, that we kind of need to do the check of how else do I get some of these other things in, which is really hard in the middle of a pandemic right. when we literally can't be around people. Right. And so even doing things like Zoom or whatever and doing game nights or, you know, where they're able to like FaceTime with with relatives or, or friends or things like that, like that's still interactive versus scrolling. Yeah. And when it comes to providing providers, um, there's lots of wonderful, wonderful resources out there. Um, one resource um, is called Postpartum Support International, and they have virtual online support groups, but they also have a provider directory. So you can look by like zip code and state and, and things like that, and it'll tell you people who've been, who's been specifically trained in perinatal mental health. Um, trauma, there's lots of different approaches to treating trauma. Um, and so um, like EMDRIA, E-M-D-R-I-A, is somebody who has um, been certified in EMDR. And so if you want to do something like EMDR, you could look up through that. Um, Psychology Today usually has lists of people um, and like kind of what they specialize in, but something might be like trauma-focused cognitive behavioral therapy is a way that um, people process trauma. Um, there's, There's lots of different ways. And so I think if you're coming into a situation where you want to process trauma, the most important thing you can do is for, is find a provider that you're comfortable with because you have to be so incredibly vulnerable with them. And so asking them questions, asking if you can set up a consult, asking them how they would treat trauma, asking how it's done, especially using telehealth or, or you know, if they're doing face-to-face and, and what they're comfortable with. Like you, you interview these people, like Remember that, like any medical professional that you go to, there are millions of them out there. And so one of the ways to empower yourselves is to be like, what, how do you're going to work into kind of my lifestyle and my fit and my choices, you know, and making sure that they align with your own value set. And that becomes a really important piece when it comes to processing anything. The nature of uh, trauma in, in mental health, I know, means that when you go into those first meetings, 
I know I was really anxious about having to tell the entire story from beginning to end. And I ended up having to do it a couple of times because I saw different providers. So what can you, what can we do to help prepare ourselves for the fact that that might be kind of exhausting or triggering itself when we walk into that for the first time? Like you said, it's all about finding the right person. Mm-hmm. Well, I think, you know, one of the things can be simply asking, you know, I, I have this history of trauma. Um, I don't know if I'm ready to go into all of the details. I kind of want to see it out. So they might ask you specific questions about like symptoms or things like that. But remember that another right that you have is the risk you have privacy respect even with your your therapist your counselor your psychologist like they may ask you for details or they may ask you questions and you have the right to say no I'm not ready to deal with that yet you know otherwise it's just a violation um and so you have the ability to say I I just I can't go there right now and so you simply say okay and I've, I've worked with clients who all, all I know is that they, they come in, they say, I've experienced something traumatic, and then they'll start crying or something like that and be flooded or overwhelmed. And so that's all I know. And I'll just ask questions like, you know, do you dream about it? Do you ever feel like you're not there when you are? So I might ask about the symptoms, but I may not exactly re- require them to account the information word for word repeatedly. Um, and so Again, when it comes to finding a provider asking if you were going to collect a trauma history, am I allowed to say no if I'm going into places that I don't feel comfortable with yet? Yeah, I love that. I think um, you always do such a wonderful job of empowering our listeners to do what's best for them. And I think as people who are around the medical community a lot, once you're in the NICU and out of the NICU, you get, you're around medical community. So um, sometimes it's important to remember that you're at the center and that you, you have the power to, to protect yourself. And that's awesome. Um, and I think as we close out, I just want to say too, um, like Ashley said, if you have a diagnosis of PTSD or you're experiencing anything, it's, it doesn't have to be, um, scary in the sense that there's something quote unquote wrong with you. You know, this is, it's a very human experience suffering. So I, I just want to say that we are here with you. We um, know what you're going through and we, we love you and support you. And um, we know there's hope. We know it, you know, we've been to hell and back too. And we're here to some extent today. So yeah. Beautiful. Well, mamas, thank you again for tuning in. Thank you, Natalie, for being with here with us again today. It's always such an honor and treat to have you here. And mamas, we just hope that um, to those of you who may be listening to this that are like, you know what, I resonate with some of those symptoms or some of those feelings that this is the first step to reaching out to a local provider or with COVID, there's a lot of mental health specialists that are doing telehealth. So mama, there are options and you are worth the investment of taking care of that beautiful heart and mind of yours. So um, thank you you again, Natalie. We will link her resources as well as some of the other resources mentioned in the episode in the bio. So we hope you have a wonderful rest of your week and we'll chat next time. If you love this podcast and would like to hear more amazing stories, please consider becoming a member of the Dear NICU Mama Patreon page. In addition to special merchandise and early access to content, Patreon members support the mission, programs, and services of Dear NICU Mama. You can find the link on the description of this episode. As always, if you'd like to hear more from Dear NICU Mama, click subscribe. Welcome to the sisterhood.